Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Right, Revelation chapter 11, 11, verse 15. I have a question for you. I'm going to do a little poll here, and you can raise your hand. Um, do you? How many of you guys like waiting? Any of you like waiting? Just it's like, man, I love waiting. Dan loves waiting. That's awesome. I think he's strange, man. <laughs> oh, we, are we talking in water or? Oh, not waiting. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No. Yeah, I like waiting, too. No, waiting. Waiting for things. Uh, So Dan might be the only one that really enjoys Revelation, uh, their study through Revelation. (laughs) No, you know, most of us don't like waiting, right? That's that's one of the hardest things to do, you know, to, to sit there and wait for something to happen. If you are like me and you're kind of getting impatient, you don't like to wait, uh, going through the book of Revelation might be a little difficult for you because we've, you know, we're waiting for this, for the final revelation. We're waiting for judgment. We're waiting for the, for the battle of Armageddon. We're waiting for all these things to take place. And we've, as we've been going through these few chapters, we've been having to wait. You know, we started out uh, reading about, in chapter 6, seven seals that were to be opened um, on the scroll that the Lamb took from the Father on the throne. And we get to the end of chapter 6, and only six seals have been opened. What about the seventh one? Well, we get to chapter 7, and, and we have this interlude, people like to call it that, but it's parenthetical information. It's, it's uh, like, for example, uh, in chapter 7, we read about 144,000 sealed among the tribes of Israel during the tribulation. We also read in chapter 7 uh, the great harvest of souls that are martyred during the tribulation. It's all parenthetical information. It's not necessarily chronological, but it's other information that the Lord wanted us to know. Finally, finally, those of us that hate waiting, we get to chapter 8, and finally the seventh seal is opened. But only to find out that the opening of the seventh seal ushers in seven trumpet judgments which are in chapters 8 and 9. And if you've been with us through our study, you know what I'm talking about, chapters 8 and 9, the seven trumpet judgments. Well, six of the seven trumpets have been sounded by the end of chapter 9, but before the seventh trumpet is sounded, chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11 that we looked at last week, we have another interlude. We have to wait again. And there's more parenthetical information. In chapter 10 and the first part of 11, John sees another mighty angel who hands him a little scroll to eat. Then he is told to measure the temple that will be built during the tribulation. Finally, we get to the end of chapter 11 and there's no more waiting. Finally, the seventh trumpet is sounded at the end of chapter 11. And that's where we're going to pick it up here in verse 15 of chapter 11. Then the seventh angel sounded, finally, (laughs) and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. 
The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. Notice, if you will, in verse 15, in verse 17, the verb tenses that are then there. It says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Verse 17, you have taken your great power and reigned. We have this symphony of voices that John hears here in heaven proclaiming Christ's reign as if it has already occurred. And yet, we know that the sounding of the seventh trumpet, as we'll find out in another week or so, also sets the stage for seven vials or bowls of God's judgment or God's wrath to be poured out. We know that there, you know, we're only at chapter 12. We know that there are a lot yet, excuse me, a lot more chapters of Revelation to go yet. We also know that the Antichrist and his armies are going to go, uh, or they're going to try to fight God at the Battle of Armageddon. That we haven't read about that yet. We also know that at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth, known as the millennium, that there's going to be a very short lived rebellion right towards the end of that millennium, uh, the millennial reign of Christ. And so you would think, well, isn't, isn't declaring victory here in chapter 12 a, a little premature? I mean, there's still things to take place yet. But you see, from heaven's perspective, the battle's already over. From heaven's perspective, it's as good as done. Now, that should be really a comfort to you and me. I like what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who calls you is faithful and will also do it. That's a comfort to me. Because sometimes, you know, I'm not blameless. Sometimes I deserve blame. Sometimes, you know, it's like, oh man, I feel so unfaithful to the Lord. But he who calls you and I is faithful. He's going to do that work of righteousness in us. I like what Hebrews 12.2 says. Jesus is not only the author of our faith. He's not only one that, you know, that faith is a gift from God, but he's also the finisher of our faith. So when Jesus looks at you and I, it's as good as done. He sees us not as we are right now. He sees us as we will be. He sees the finished product, project, product, I should say. So that's a comfort to me. So from heaven's perspective, man, it's a done deal. Well, we get to verse 18, and verse 18 is really a fulfillment of Psalm 2. I'm going to just read it. You can turn there or mark it down if you want, but I'll I'll read it to you, the first five verses. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. That was a psalm of David. That was written probably over 3,000 years ago. 
Why has God allowed man to rebel against him for thousands and thousands and thousands of years? Why doesn't God just wrap things up here at the end of chapter 11? Why do we have to keep waiting through the opening of the seven seals, the sounding of the seventh trumpets, the pouring out of the seven bowls? I mean, we're getting impatient, aren't we? I am. It's like I want to get to the end of this. Well, we may be growing impatient. We want to reach the conclusion You know, where God's plan of redemption and judgment is finished. But you see, God's patient. I'm not patient. You can ask my wife. But God's patient. God is so patient. Psalm 103, verse 8. We see the character of God. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come uh, to repentance. God's so patient. That's why he's waited so long. I'm glad he waited until at least I got saved. <laughs> you know, and, and, and sometimes we go, Lord, why aren't you coming back now? Why hasn't it happened yet? Well, there's more people yet to be saved. There's more people to minister to. Well, now we get to verse 19, and the temple in heaven is opened. Listen, the tabernacle in the wilderness, Solomon's temple, the tribulation temple, the millennial temple, they're all copies and shadows of what is in heaven. And here John gets to view it himself. Notice chapter 11 opened. Remember in the beginning, we talked about it last week, John was measuring the temple that will be standing, that will be built in Jerusalem during the uh, tribulation. And chapter 11 closes with John seeing the real McCoy in heaven. Now there's no mention of God's presence in the tribulation chap- in the tribulation temple we talked about last week in the beginning of, verse, of chapter 11. In fact, his presence is going to be outside of the temple in Jerusalem and with his two witnesses. His presence will be with his two witnesses. It's not going to be in that tribulational temple. Why? Because it's an affront to God. Because they have rejected the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And they're they're wanting to do animal sacrifices again. And the Antichrist is going to make that happen through diplomacy and deceit. But the opening of God's temple in verse 19 It's accompanied with lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. God's presence is there. Well, then we get to chapter 12. And here in chapter 12, I'm sorry for those of you that have to wait, or that hate waiting, we're given some more parenthetical information. Some more important information, that uh, a more complete view of what's taking place both in heaven and on earth. And so we get to chapter 12, verse 1. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now, when you're doing your Bible studying, you know, it says a sign appeared in heaven, okay? So right away, we know that it's not literal. There's not this literal woman hovering around in heaven. There's, this is a sign. It's a symbol, and yet it's a symbol with great meaning and great significance. Well, who does this woman Uh, Who does the symbol of a woman represent? Well, the Catholic Church says it's the Virgin Mary. Others say 
It's the church in its totality. Mary Baker Eddy, she was the founder of the Christian science cult. She claimed she was the woman that's there in heaven. Well, who is that woman in heaven? Well, there's this principle in Bible studying and hermeneutics called the law or the principle of first mention. It's where in the Bible, the first place something occurs, like a first, first word or a first doctrine is introduced in the Bible. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes it gives us a basic understanding of, that, of what that word means or that doctrine is. And then as you go through scriptures, you get a more fuller picture. It's explained more. That's what the, 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 the principle of the law of first mention. Well, the law of first mention might give us a clue. Because the very first place that we hear, uh, uh, that we read about a mention of a woman, a sun, moon, and 12 stars appears in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, Joseph is dreaming a dream. And, and there is, it says in verse 9 of 37, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come down to bow down to the earth before you? See, when Joseph had this dream, the sun, the moon, and the twelve stars, Jacob understood the meaning of the dream. He understood that the dream, that the star represented, uh, uh, excuse me, that the sun represented him and that the moon represented his wife, Rachel. He also understood that the twelve stars represented his twelve sons. Eleven of those bowing down to Joseph, the other star. Well, Jacob, turns out, was accurate in his interpretation because Joseph eventually did become the prime minister of the nation of Egypt. And in a real sense, his family did bow down to him. So based on the law or the principle of first mention, it is safe to assume that the woman is a sign of the nation of Israel. In fact, frequently in the Old Testament, Israel is portrayed as the wife of Jehovah. Look at Jeremiah 3.20. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. Now there are people that say, well, no, this woman is the church. But you see, the bride of Christ is not a wife in labor, but a chaste virgin. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11:2, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. One other thing here, if you look at verse 2, it says, Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And we'll find out in verse 5 that this, this, this male child is who she gives birth to. It's Jesus. Well, listen, the church didn't give birth to Jesus. Jesus gave birth to the church. So this isn't the church. This is Israel. So this woman cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And we know that the nation of Israel was in great pain under Roman occupation when Christ was born. Verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great and fiery red dragon, 
having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Again, when we're doing our Bible studying here, this is another sign. There's not, not a literal dragon. There's another a symbol, a, a sign of something. Well, this dragon has seven heads and ten horns. That speaks of his great power. He has seven diadems on his heads, which speaks of great authority. And if you notice in the Greek, which you may not have the Greek right there, you're just looking at an English Bible, but it's not a Stephanos, which is the victor's crown. It's a diadema. It's something that royalty wears. So this dragon has great power and claims great authority. Now, there's no guesswork. We don't have to go, well, I wonder who this dragon represents, because in verse 9 of, of this chapter, we're told it's the devil. It's a symbol of the devil. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. This is the pride of Satan, the pride of Lucifer. I like what Robertson's word picture says of this. He says, if Christ as a conqueror has many diadems, it's not strange that Satan should wear seven. Because he wants to be just like the Most High. So this dragon here, his color is fiery red. That speaks of his murderous nature. John said in, uh, Jesus said in John 8.44, he was a murderer from the beginning. We're also told that his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Again, this is a sign. It's a symbol. Well, stars, particularly in the Old Testament, speak of angels quite frequently. And we know that Lucifer was a high-ranking created angel and that he rebelled against God prior to man's creation, some point prior to man's creation. And he led a rebellion. And based on this, people think he, a third of the angels joined his rebellion. Those fallen angels are what we call demons right now. Now, one thing to take note, if his tail swept a third of the stars from heaven, in other words, if one third of the created angels are now fallen, what we call demons, well, guess what? That means there's two-thirds of the holy angels that are still faithful to God. And the Bible says that they're ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. So if you get all, ooh, there's, you know, the demons are scary, scary. Listen, the fallen angels are outnumbered two to one. Well, this woman was pregnant and about to give birth to a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God into his throne. And we, we go, well, that's, that's Jesus. 
The dragon Satan says stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And we know when Jesus was born that King Herod attempted to wipe out the threat because Jesus posed a threat to his throne. And so he had all the babies, all the male babies under two years old murdered in the Bethlehem vicinity, hoping to, you know, to annihilate Jesus, to, to wipe out that threat to his throne. Now listen, this was not just the actions of a paranoid Idumean king. This was a satanic inspired event to prevent the Messiah from surviving his childbirth. It was Satan's been trying to prevent the Messiah from coming. You think of all the times where 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 uh, uh, it, the Jewish people before, prior to Christ's coming were, you know, uh, Haman in in uh, I forgot what book he was in, where he tried to wipe out the Jews. It's been it's been an inspired thing from Satan all through their history to prevent the Messiah from being born. Well, this parenthetical information in chapter 12 provides so many answers regarding anti-Semitism. I was doing a little little bit of searching, and and I've heard this before, but I was fascinated with this. Did you know that 22.5% of Nobel Peace Prizes have been awarded to Jewish people? You might say, okay, big deal, 22%. What makes this fascinating is Jewish people comprise less than 0.2% of the world's population. So it's an inordinate proportion of Jewish people that have been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. So many of the world's important inventors, scientists, doctors, and engineers, etc., are Jewish. Look at some of their accomplishments. The pacemaker, the defibrillator, those were invented by Jewish uh, inventors. DNA research, genetic engineering... The basis for creating stainless steel back in 1893, it was, it, was, it was developed by a Jewish person. Vaccines for cholera, uh, cholera, excuse me, bubonic plague and polio, those were all created and invented by Jewish people. Even Google was invented by two Jewish guys. Some famous Jewish scientists, you know them, you've heard of them before, Albert Einstein, right? We all know who Albert Einstein is. Oppenheimer was called the father of the atomic bomb. His uh, contemporary teller was called the father of the hydrogen bomb. And the list goes on and on and on. A lot of the comedians that we have, you know, they're Jewish. Musicians, composers, writers, actors, etc. They're Jewish. So this gets us thinking. Why would a race of people that make up 0.2% of the total world's population, and yet they've contributed so much to society, why would they be so hated? And the reason why, it's satanic. Satan's hatred for God's chosen people. And Satan's desire to annihilate the race of people that the Messiah would eventually descend from. That's why. In verse 6, it says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. We've come across different phrases for three and a half years, or the half of the tribulation. We hear, here's 1,260 days. That's one half of the tribulation. Uh, in this case, it would be the second half of the, the great tribulation, and we'll talk about that more in, in verse 13. But moving on to verse 7. And war broke out in heaven, and his angels fought with the dragon, 
and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. So John sees this war breaking out in heaven. Michael the archangel and his angels, in other words, the angels under his authority, are in a battle against Satan and his fallen angels who are under his authority. And it says there that the devil and his angels did not prevail. And then there's something very interesting. It says, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer you go wait a minute satan's a fallen angel he was kicked out of heaven how what do you mean there is no more a place found for him in heaven any longer it's fascinating well we know from the book of job and for some reason in god's wisdom and i I don't understand it but for some reason god allows satan access to the throne in heaven he allows satan to enter heaven in Job, we know that, that God and, and Satan are having this discussion about Job. Zechariah has a vision in Zechariah 3. And in that vision, Joshua the high priest is standing before the Lord and Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse Joshua. So for some reason, Satan is allowed access to heaven. In fact, right now, the Bible says that Satan is our accuser. He's standing day and night accusing you and I before the Father. The good news, of course, is that Jesus Christ is our advocate, right? He's our legal representative. Every time we get accused by Satan, see, the blood of Jesus Christ not only cleanses us from our sin, but also from a guilty conscience, Hebrews 9.14. Every time we're accused, and sometimes we have that accusations that come up, man, I really blew it, I really blew it. But you know what? Jesus Christ paid for your sin on the cross. It's, it's been done. The sin's been paid for. But he's standing there accusing us day and night. Verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now we get some more information about who Lucifer, who this dragon is. He's, He's called the serpent of old, and I think this is referring to his appearing as a serpent in the Garden of Eden to Eve. And he was crafty in his deception. He's also called the devil, which that word means slanderer, and Satan, and that word means adversary. You know, so he's cast down here in verse 9. You know, the Bible speaks four times of when Satan's cast down four different times. The first time it mentions is when he's cast out from perfection, wisdom, and beauty to profane. You can see that in Ezekiel uh, 28. The second time he's cast down is from having access 
uh, before the Father to being restricted on the earth. And we see that right here in chapter 12. The third time he's going to be cast down is from earth to chains in the bottomless pit. We'll get to that when we get to Revelation chapter 20. And then the fourth time he's cast down is from the bottomless pit to the lake of fire, also in Revelation 20. Every time it's, it's lower and lower and lower, more you know, degrading and degrading and degrading. So how do the saints overcome the devil? Well, first of all, by the blood of the Lamb. Why? Because, because of the blood of the Lamb, you know, had that blood not been shed for you and I, Satan's accusations would have, would have stood. We couldn't have answered his accusations because when I'm accused, he's right. <laughs> I'm a blow, I, I've sinned. I've blown it. I've, I've done something. But you see, Christ's blood answers every accusation against you and I. So they overcome the devil by the blood of the Lamb. They overcome the devil by the word of their testimony. A testimony is that which someone states or reports about something or someone. And I believe what he's talking about is you and I confessing our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and our standing on the Word of God. So overcoming the, the devil by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Jesus said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. What is he talking about? He's talking about complete surrender to the Lord, dying to self. Those are the three ways the saints overcome the devil, the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their own lives to the death. So Satan's cast out. He no longer has a place there in heaven. Verse 12, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. He knows his time is limited. Look at verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So this occurs, right? what we're reading here in verse 13 and 14, this occurs after the death of the two witnesses in chapter 11. It occurs after the Antichrist breaks his peace covenant with Israel, because up until then there's this peace between them. And it's when he stands in the Holy of Holies in the temple, declares he is God and demands to be worshipped. And Jesus said in Mark 13, verse 14, when you see this occur, when you, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Because at that point, the devil's wrath is going to be great, and he's one going to destroy the Jewish people. And so it's at that time, Jesus says, when you see that, Get out of Jerusalem. Get out of Judea. Flee. Head to the mountains. Don't even go back to pack a bag. Just run. Leave. Verse 14 of chapter 12, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle 
that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Here we get this other phraseology again, a time and times and half a time. It's all speaking about the same uh, period of time, either three and a half years, 42 months, or 1260 days. It's one half of the seven-year tribulation. And in this case, it would be the second half of the tribulation. So the woman, which is Israel, says will be given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Now some people have said, well, that, that's got to be America, you know. Uh, maybe there's going to be some kind of a Berlin airlift type of thing. Hey, it sounds cool. I mean, it's, it's, it's wishful. I mean, it's definitely patriotic, right? Go USA! <laughs> but I don't think it's the case. The Bible says by this time, into all the nations of the world are going to be turned against Jerusalem, against Israel. I, I don't know where America will be at that point. I think maybe the law of first mention again helps us. The two wings of a great eagle, Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. This is the first time this is mentioned. Jesus, or God said to, the, to Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So it would be nice to think that, that America is going to stand with Israel during this time. I don't think it's going to be the case. Well, who's this, who's this great wing, uh, two wings of a great eagle? Well, I think it's just God himself. God's going to miraculously. He doesn't need America to help him out. He, he's going to do, he's going to take care of his people. So where is this place in the wilderness that is prepared for her, for this woman, for Israel, during the second half of the tribulation? A lot of Bible scholars think it's in Petra, Jordan, which is the rock city. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones, you've probably seen that. Um, and the reason why they base that is on Isaiah 16, verses 1 through 4. And I've got to apologize to you because it's, it's kind of an eye chart there. We're testing your eyesight, but I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness. Selah, by the way, is, is Petra. To the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. So shall be the daughters of Moab in the fords of the Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment. Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressed are consumed out of the land. The oppressors, excuse me, are consumed out of the land. So a lot of Bible scholars say, well, this is that what's being spoken of here in Revelation chapter 12. This place is that the rock city of Petra in Jordan. We get to verse 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I, I don't know what this flood is um, that is spewed out of the mouth of the serpent. It says here that the earth is going to help the woman. 
that the earth is going to open its mouth and swallow up whatever that flood is. I don't, I don't understand if that's his armies or, or what. But the earth literally opening its mouth? I mean, we're starting to get into some really weird stuff, aren't we? Listen, it's entirely possible. Remember when Pharaoh was chasing after the children of Israel, they, they came to the, to the edge of the Red Sea and, and they were pretty much boxed in in that location and Pharaoh and his army was, was barreling down on them and they had nowhere to go and God miraculously parted the Red Sea so that the, Egypt, or the children of Israel could cross on dry ground. And Pharaoh, he never thought his, he and his army would literally be swallowed up and drowned in the Red Sea and yet that's exactly what happened. Dathan, if you ever know who he is, Dathan in the Old Testament, he never thought the ground would open up and swallow him and his family, and yet it happened. So is it a literal thing that's occurring here? I, I don't really know. It could be something like a haboob. You ever heard of a haboob? <laughs> it's, a, it's actually a, 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 a huge windstorm, dust storm, that occurs well, all over the world, but also mainly in the Middle East could be something like that, where God's going to create a way for Israel to escape. I don't really know. So how many Jewish people are going to survive the Great Tribulation? That's an interesting question. You know, I think there's an answer. In Zechariah 13, verse 9, it says, I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say, this is my people and each one will say, the Lord is my God. You know, earlier I talked about one third of the fallen angels. Well, there's two thirds of, that are faithful angels. That's, that's awesome. Well, here it appears based on Zechariah 13.9, it's just flipped around. Two thirds of the Jewish people are going are gonna to perish during the, the tribulation, the great tribulation. But a third of them, a remnant, is going to be saved by the Lord God. So I mentioned that this chapter was parenthetical information, and I, and I said it was significant, because I think how you interpret who this woman is, I think it, it, it really says what you believe about eschatology or, you know, or where you're, what you believe about things. So it's significant in, in that respect. And I think the lesson for us is that the Lord God is not done with the nation of Israel. Paul said that in Romans. God's not done with Israel. That 70th week of Daniel, I'm not going to go into that this morning, but, but that 70th week of Daniel, 69 weeks have occurred, weeks of years. There's this, there's this final seventh week of years, which is the tribulation, the, the time of Jacob, Jacob's trouble. It's when God is dealing with the nation of Israel directly. The church has been raptured, is in heaven at this time. I think it's good news for us. Well, of course, being in heaven is great news, but it's good news that God has not turned his back on the nation of Israel. Listen, there's some people that, that they follow, they, they say, well, you know, the, the covenants and the blessings that originally belonged to Israel, they were unfaithful, and now those blessings, those covenants have been transferred to the church. It's called replacement theology. So every time they see prophecies about Israel, they say, well, it's the church. All those blessings and prophecies have come to the church. Listen, if those blessings and covenants that originally applied to Israel had been transferred the church to the church because of Israel's unfaithfulness, how good of, of a standing do you and I have then 
Because I know I'm not faithful all the time. Does that mean that God's going to take away his covenant and his blessings from me because of my unfaithfulness? The answer is no. God's faithful. I think that's the good message in here for us. Because if our salvation and God's faithfulness depends on me, man, I'm sunk. And so are you. So the good news is God's faithful to the Jewish people and it means that he's also going to be faithful to you and I. So I hope you're encouraged in that. I think that's the message that we see in chapter 12 this morning. Why don't you stand up and the worship team, you want to come on up? Actually, you can stay sitting. You don't have to stand up. Let's have the worship team stand up. We'll make them stand. <laughs> Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And uh, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness even to a stubborn, rebellious people. Lord, that your love was not based on their performance, not based on their works. It was based on you and your love. And Lord, that gives me comfort. It gives us comfort that your love for us is not based on our performance. Because Lord, I know if it was based on my performance, I would have no hope. I would have no future but it's based on your loving kindness, Lord. And so we rejoice in that. We thank you for that. Lord, we also thank you, Lord, that you are patient. Lord, so many times I am impatient. Lord, I'm tired of waiting. I want things to happen. And Lord God, you have every right to stop everything and and just to to, uh, judge us, judge this world now. And yet, Lord God, you're patient, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we thank you, Lord God. We thank you for your patience, your patience for each one of us. Lord God, I pray that as we understand your patience, as we understand your faithfulness, Lord, your love for us, that it's not based on our performance, Lord, I pray that it's that kindness your kindness that would lead us to repentance, Lord, if we're walking in sin right now, Lord, that we repent of our sins, we confess them to you, and that we would, we would seek to live a life pleasing to you, Lord God. I thank you for your word this morning. I ask your blessing on our time as we just want to reflect and we just want to express our worship to you now, Lord God. We love you because you first loved us, and we thank you and love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.